You should have a handout in front of you. It says Habakkuk on the top asks God, why do the wicked prosper? It's a classic uh, philosophical question. It's a classic question that Christians struggle with or uh, young people who grew up in the Christian faith then struggle with, with whether they can embrace the Christian faith. It's uh, a question that when you do evangelism and our missionaries uh, report that uh, people ask, and you may have had some friends and coworkers and neighbors ask the same uh, question. Maybe this came up at your Thanksgiving meal. Maybe it'll come up in your Christmas gatherings. It's a very central question, why do the wicked prosper? Our book tackles this question. The main point of the book is uh, printed across the top of your handout, figuring out how it is that God can be good while evil succeeds in the world. Here's a summary of the book of Habakkuk uh, from the perspective of our uh, God theater, we're calling this, the 12 stories, the 12 minor prophets. Habakkuk, our eighth minor prophet presentation in our God theater, features a prophet in an extended dialogue with God. Habakkuk was a decent man who was anguished over societal sins. Does that sound familiar? Habakkuk saw his nation filled with sin and Babylon rising, yet God seemed inactive and unconcerned. As in all 12 minor prophets, quote, judgment unto restoration, end quote, is found here. While judging all nations, God would take action, quote, for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed, Chapter 3.13, which is why Habakkuk ends by offering hopeful praise. Chapter 3.16-19. The man Habakkuk, next section on your handout. The man Habakkuk and the times in which he was living, just a little bit here. The name Habakkuk means to embrace, like a hug. But I know you automatically think of a loving hug. Good for you. It's true, but there's another definition of embrace. Um, and it's, so I, I've spelled it out a little bit more on your handout. It's used more in a wrestling embrace. You know how two wrestlers, when they start, have this position? That's the position just before wrestling, clasping, um, grappling, or disputing. So in that sense, the name Habakkuk fits. He's wrestling with God over this deep theological question, this um, area where he could doubt, where he does struggle to doubt how God can be good when the wicked are prospering. So I hope that helps you. The name often gives us a key to the centrality of the book in these minor prophets. It does again here. So, uh, like you've become accustomed to if you're walking with us through these minor prophets, again, for Habakkuk, we don't know much about the man personally. We have a little bit, which I'm going to spend a minute talking about now. That's about it. Um, He's mentioned nowhere else in the Old Testament. He's mentioned nowhere else in the Bible. So we don't have a lot else to cross-reference. We do know when he lived, which helps tremendously. Uh, It's evident when he lived from his writing as we study it. We know that he lived at the same time as Jeremiah. have to mention that because he's one of our longtime friends now, Jeremiah. And he lived during the reigns of those kings then, Josiah, which we'll mention a little bit today, King Josiah. You might remember him as the, the king who rediscovered the law and brought reform, good reform, to Israel. During the reign of Josiah, Jehoahaz, Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin, those names might ring a bell because we studied them in Jeremiah, and then Zedekiah also in that book. So um, that places our author, our prophet, uh, Habakkuk, from about the years 609 to 587. 
And from the situation that Habakkuk describes in his book, as we'll get into in just a moment, he must have been writing sometime after the fall of the city of Nineveh to the Babylonians, which happened in 612 BC. So we just studied this, of course, in the book of Nahum, which is why I'm mentioning it. So it's also evident from the situation about which he's writing here that he lived and wrote before the fall of Jerusalem to the Babylonians in 587 BC. We know this from <clears throat> chapter 1, verse 6, where God wrote, God said that he was raising up Babylon. So they're on the rise, but they haven't yet attacked and brought Jerusalem down. So if you look on your handout, the second bullet point under the man Habakkuk says uh, that squiggly just means about 625 to 587 BC at the time as God was bringing down Assyria and as God was raising up Babylon. That's about the time frame where Habakkuk is living and writing and speaking. Next on your handout, well-known quotes embedded in Habakkuk. You, you uh, groaned at our fun quiz because you thought, uh-oh, I don't know about Habakkuk. But you might know more than you think you do about Habakkuk. Listen to these phrases. Don't they sound familiar? You are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, 113. 2.3, if it seems slow, wait for it, it will surely come. Especially Habakkuk 2.4, I'm sure you've heard this, the righteous shall live by faith. And the reason you've heard of it is because it's in Romans 1.17, Galatians 3.10, and Hebrews 10.38. We'll cover that today, Lord willing. And then um, chapter 2.14, er, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. I'm sure you've heard that phrase. Um, and then chapter 2.20, we often use for a call to worship. The Lord is in his holy temple at all. The earth keeps silence before him. Shall I say this? That will be on the quiz next week. <laughs> okay. Uh, chapter 3, verse 2, in the midst of the years, revive it. In wrath, remember mercy. I'm sure you've heard that phrase, in wrath, remember mercy. It fits right with our uh, theme for our, um, our uh, God theater here, judgment unto restoration. In wrath, remember mercy. Chapter 3, 17 to 18, though there be no herd in the stalls and so on, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. And then chapter 3, 19, the very last words of the book of Habakkuk, he makes my feet like the deers. Um, well, it's in the last, it's in the, the last verse, but then it ends. he makes my, me tread on my high places. So that's the actual last words. All right, so the outline of Habakkuk is before you. Uh, what we're basically going to cover is two separate dialogues between Habakkuk and God, two, two questions that Habakkuk puts to God and God answers. So I guess in our God theater, I kind of, I kind of imagine the props and scene that they would use for the God Theater is you basically just have one of those stools and a solo person comes out, and it's this man, Habakkuk, and he sits down and he poses a question to God and, you know, as it were, the narrator gives the voice of God in response and he's, what? He reacts to that and he gives a second question in reaction to that and then the second answer from God comes. So that'll take us through what I call on the outline chat number one, chat number two. And that will lead us to the war oracle or poem, which is five visions of God's judgment against a wicked oppressor. In other words, God is taking on the question of, do the wicked prosper? And not to tell you who done it, but if you look at the very bottom of your outline, it says, no, the wicked don't prosper. When it seems that way, remember God rules and will take action. So hopefully that's encouraging to you to know that's how the book ends. All right, let's dig in. So introduction, we've uh, done a little bit to introduce you to Habakkuk. We talked about Oracle 
uh, last time, so a war oracle. It's an announcement of judgment to come. Habakkuk, uh, his, his name, and we talked about how that means to, to contend or wrestle, and this is what he saw. So it's a vision from God for him that he's bringing to us. So chat number one, between prophet and God, uh, chapter one, verses two to 12, and then God's, his question to God, oh, holy God, how can you tolerate sin in Judah? Chapter one, verses two through four. So as the story opens, it sounds a lot like Micah chapter one and like Nahum chapter one, if you remember these last weeks as we've uncovered those. And the similarity is that God is coming in judgment. We saw courtroom scenes where God is saying, woe to you, basically. God is dealing with the sin of his people, and he's doing so in a strong and severe manner. So we see that dynamic again here. In judgment, God can use a wicked nation as his spanking paddle for his people, right? Without endorsing the wrongs of those nations. Most nations do tend towards wickedness like Babylon. They're kind of gravitating towards that direction. Why doesn't God do something about it? Wow. For a book that's 2,600 years old, that's sounding relevant, isn't it? I mean, why would you tell your, your friends and your, uh, your extended family, what would you do today? I started off the day going to a class on Habakkuk. I'm sorry, what? Habakkuk, it's a book in the Bible. Oh, why would you do that? <laughs> That's old stuff, right? No, this is extremely relevant, right? Surprisingly modern, relevant topic. People today ask, what's the meaning of the events that happened today? What's the meaning of the events that happened in the past? Uh, wasn't God involved with those events? How can a good God allow these things to happen in our day, right? Don't you have, that? I think our whole Society is wrestling with these sorts of questions. Why were there evil things that happened? And you could think of Pearl Harbor. We went through the remembrance of that this week. You could think of 9-11. You could think of more recent stuff that's happening in certain places in the world today, right? Why didn't God do something about the wickedness before it happened? Why didn't God do something about the wickedness while it was happening? Why wouldn't God stop some of the atrocities that are happening to poor children or ladies? How can I believe in a loving, personal God when this is the God who's allowing these things to happen in this decade? I thought we were past all this, right? I think we assume that once we got past World War II, for example, we wouldn't be hearing these sorts of things again. It's all stuff we studied in history. We're not going to repeat that now, are we? And where is God? Is God in charge of the world? People question. If God is in charge of the world, then why do things happen as they do? Does that mean God is not good? So that he will not help or does not care or that he's not powerful or not powerful enough to intervene and allow certain things but not other things because that's going too far. He, he would so much like to help because he has a good heart, but can't really make any substantive changes. Or is it that God is both good and powerful, but we're supposed to believe that God is not willing to intervene somehow for some other reason? Where does this leave our understanding of God? I think you see that this is very much a question for people in our society. I think all young people travel through these pathways as they grow up. It's a part of adolescence. 
and it continues to be a part of our thought process unless we've settled these questions. And Habakkuk is going right after these questions. I know I'm giving you quite an intro, but before we read the first verse of the actual prophecy, verse 2, you need to understand where he's coming from, and all this is in the backdrop, you see. The, the answer during the days of Habakkuk is the same as the answer today. 2,600 years later, our God is the same God, which is like the Exodus of long ago. God's people are warranted to look to God to help them out of a pickle, out of a jam. We're warranted to look to God today for a new form of an exodus, which will bring down the Egypts or the Pharaohs or the Babylons or the kings of this world. And together with that, will he rescue the oppressed out there, the innocent out there, or will he rescue the oppressed in here, the innocent in here, right, in the world and in the church? We're warranted to look to God for another exodus. If he's the same God today who did the parting of the Red Sea so that his people walked through on dry ground, allowed them to get to the other side and then closed the water hallway and drowned the Egyptian army. If he did that, then has he changed till today? Is he not also a God who would save his people from oppression, from evil forces? And what about the oppression from our own sin nature? What about the oppression from the devil? All of these things are mixed in. So again, before I read verse 2, just let me do a moment more. Verse 2 will show the heart of Habakkuk. I'm trying to express that this is all that's going on in this poor man. Uh, we need to understand the heart of the prophet Habakkuk to understand his first verse, and, it, and you'll see how it all clarifies. So let me give you a sense of the mindset and where he might have gotten it from. Habakkuk would have been a boy while the king Josiah was also a boy. I mentioned him, uh, King Josiah, the good king who rediscovered the word of God, the law of God. Could it be that our Habakkuk got his heart and mind from good King Josiah? Let me read a paragraph from 2 Chronicles 34, 3-7. 2 Chronicles 34, 3-7 about King Josiah. Listen to this. In the eighth year of his reign, King Josiah, while he was yet a boy, he began to seek the God of David his father. And in the twelfth year, he began to purge which means take out the bad stuff, of Judah and Jerusalem in the high places, the Asherim, which was a wicked pole, and the carved and metal images, and they chopped down the altars of the Baals, false gods, in his presence, and he cut down the incense altars that stood above them, and he broke in pieces the Asherim and the carved and the metal images, and he made dust of them and scattered it over the graves of those who had sacrificed to them. He also burned the bones of the priests on their altars and cleansed Judah and Jerusalem and then the cities of Manasseh, Ephraim, and Simeon. And as far as Naphtali, in, all, in their ruins all around, he broke down the altars and beat the Asherim and the images into powder and cut, them, cut down all the incense altars throughout all the land of Israel. Then he returned to Jerusalem. Second Chronicles 34, 3-7. These were the actions of King Josiah as a young man, and the other young man was Habakkuk seeing all this. So later, fast forward in the, in the reign of good King Josiah, the 18th year of the reign of good King Josiah, he began to fix up the temple, which had just been run down through neglect. And during the process of fixing up the temple, 
the Bible was found. I'm saying the word Bible, but you know, it's the law of God, what they would call the Torah in those days. They found the Bible like, oh, what's this? That's how distant they had become from following God's word day by day. The priest brings it to King Josiah. Look what we found in the temple when we're fixing it up. Read it, says the king. So the priest stands and reads. He reads to God's people. What does God do when his word is read? By his spirit, he causes the hearts of his people to come alive, come to him. The king was convicted of his sin. King Josiah is convicted. I'm not doing right. So were all the people who heard the word of God being read. It was the start of a revival, what we would call. So they relaunched the annual observance of Passover and so on. All the things that needed to change, they changed. We're on their way to changing. But then King Josiah was killed in battle. Kind of rough when the principal leader who's leading you to the word of God is gone. What happens to the people? The, the people became disillusioned and reverted back to their former evil ways. Those patterns of sin in God's people in Judah continued until what year? Take a guess. <laughs> Why am I telling you this? 587 BC, when Jerusalem fell to the army from Babylon. Okay, so Habakkuk is just before that. He has seen good King Josiah. He has seen reforms. Uh, Josiah's dead. The people are reverting back. He looks on the horizon and he sees Babylon rising. And right then, okay, is we start our prophecy. You've got to have that context. Now you have the context. Listen to this. Verse 2. I will utterly sweep away everything. I'm the wrong prophet. Okay, verse 2. Habakkuk 2, 1, verse 2. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. This is the cry of Habakkuk to God. It's a soliloquy, except God's going to answer, right? So it's this dialogue between Habakkuk and God. It's an anguished cry from a godly prophet, right? What is his heart? He loved justice. He wanted things to be right. He had the same heart of good King Josiah. He wanted the nation to honor God. He remembered the brighter days, former days as a boy and a younger man, and now he's seeing spiritual decay and moral decay and the people around him, his fellow citizens, and Habakkuk the prophet is seeing justice twisted. He did what we would expect a prophet to do. He prayed. He cried out to God in prayer about the injustices and the wrongs that he was seeing. He's crying out about the deplorable condition of the spiritual life and worship and service of the people of God. And he's crying out to God about the moral decline of the whole country, uh, the people, their beliefs, their words, their actions, their behavior. Habakkuk must have been praying and waiting for some time already for the Lord's answer before we even get to these three verses. Because verse 2 began with the name of God, followed by the first two words. What are the first two words? After he addresses who he's addressing, the very first two words. How long? 
You don't start off with how long if it's your first request. You say how long after you've made many requests. So after the introduction of the book, after giving the name of God, the God to whom he's speaking, the very first words he spoke and wrote are how long. That shows us he's been waiting for a long time already. Long enough for him to bring this question forward to the Lord our God. When would the Lord God answer? What would be the answer? Would the answer be what Habakkuk is expecting? Would the answer be what Habakkuk is hoping for, requesting? God does what he does. In verse 2, Habakkuk had long been praying about violence. Does that sound familiar? I hope that everyone in this room has long been praying about violence. Verse 3, Habakkuk had long been praying about how much iniquity Habakkuk was seeing in his daily life around him. Do you get weary of it? It feels like an insult because we stand with God and God is being insulted by what people are doing and saying right around us. For quite a while, Habakkuk had been bringing to the Lord his prayers about God himself seeing the same iniquity that Habakkuk is seeing. If I'm seeing this, you, Lord, are seeing this. How can you be seeing this? And you're in a position to do something about this, and you're not doing something about this. All the wrongs and God remaining idle and inactive. God's doing nothing, in a sense. That's Habakkuk is complaining about, concerned about. And went on in verse 3 to describe what was unavoidable in Habakkuk's life and surroundings, destruction and violence. Furthermore, two things were on the rise, strife and contention. More and more conflict, more and more opposition, right? He's seeing that, and do we not see that in our culture as well? Verse 4, the law is paralyzed. What does that mean? It means the function of the law. What's the function of the law? To show people their sin. It doesn't seem to be functioning the way it's supposed to function. You present the law, you present the word of God, you tell people what right and wrong is, you say that's wrong, and it doesn't seem to have the function of convincing them that it's wrong so that they start to change or do something about it and come back to God and make it right. And people are hearing the law of God from the prophet Habakkuk, but the people are not being convinced about their sins the way they're supposed to be convinced about their sins. So he goes on to say, furthermore, justice never goes forth. The the right thing's not done. Justice is not accomplished. Wrongs are not righted. Over time, the situation devolves still further. At the end of verse 4, Habakkuk prayed out, the scene to the Lord God saying, the wicked surround the righteous. It seems like Christians are under attack in our day, in our country. We, we feel this, right? It's not new. <laughs> it's in the first generation. It's in the first country where we've had these sort of de- declines. Later, the Lord did answer, but it was a different answer than Habakkuk expected, which brings us on your handout to answer number one, God will send the enemy army from Babylon. I just... Ruin the surprise for you. Uh, uh, Chapter 1, verses 5 through 11. So look at verse 5. Look, this is God answering Habakkuk. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded, for I'm doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. Oh yeah, I'm working. Oh yeah, I'm active. Oh yeah, I'm on the move. (laughs) I'm doing all kinds of stuff. (laughs) You wouldn't believe it. (laughs) What am I doing? Verse 6. I'm raising up the Babylonian army for you. (laughs) Isn't that great? 
right? The Chaldeans, another name for the Babylonians, described by God himself as bitter and hasty as a nation. Why? Because they, quote, verse 6, marched through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. These are the people who are fierce. These are the bullies of the nations, right? They go and take whatever they want to take. Nations, people, women, children, gold, silver. They're mean to anyone who resists them. You know the deal. Is this the sort of answer that Habakkuk expected? I mean, Habakkuk expected God to send a revival. You know, like, please give us more of the days of good King Josiah. I want one of those. Instead of the revival for the hearts of God's people, he says he's raising up the nasty Babylonians to attack. Wow, that's a blow. What an answer to prayer. Didn't expect that one. How do I process this? Verse 7, they're dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity are gone. There's no convincing them to stop or do differently. Verse 8, their horses are fast and fierce. Oh, great. The men who ride the horses can handle it. Oh, great. Verse 9, they're eager for violence. Oh, my goodness. Verse 10, they scoff at kings and laugh at rulers. They laugh at every fortress. So you can't just build something and hunker down. There's no answer here. Where's the relief? If you build a fortress, they're just going to pile up dirt and take over the fortress, verse 10 tells us. Verse 11, they sweep in like the wind, they take over, and they keep going to the next city, the next nation. They're just sweeping through and taking over everything, and they're going to take you. They're doing a lot of wrong things. They're worshiping their own military strength instead of worshiping the creator God. And God is raising them up to bring them in where Habakkuk is. Pretty far from what Habakkuk wanted. So that's interchange number one, right? In our God theater, we have Habakkuk sitting on the stool asking God, and the answer comes down. And so there's a reaction from Habakkuk, right? So the end of chat number one. Now we're in chat number two. What's the question that Habakkuk would then have? (laughs) Natural reaction, right? Question number two. Oh, holy God, how can you tolerate sin in the world? His first question was, how can you tolerate sin in Judah? His second question is, how can you tolerate sin in the world? Any of the nations, especially, if you don't mind my asking, Babylon. How can you give them victory and success? Answer number two, God will punish the wicked and save the righteous. There's the, the golden answer, right? You already know where this is going, but let's walk through it, right? The first dilemma for Habakkuk was God is inactive against injustices in Judah. He solved it and saying, no, I'm... I'm promising judgment, I'm bringing judgment, don't worry. However, God's going to judge his special people for their sin using a most ungodly, wicked nation, Babylon, to judge sinning Israel. They're worse than Israel. How do you let them win? How does, how does this solve the whole problem? Right? Are you tracking with Habakkuk's mindset here? How does a holy God use wicked agents for holy purposes? How can God use Babylon? Verse 12, Habakkuk asks, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my holy one? Verse 12. Verse 13, Habakkuk said to God, You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? God's answer to this question is going to be profound. It's profound. We need this. But Habakkuk still raises the depth of the question further 
in uh, chapter 114 up to chapter 2, verse 1. He spells out the question further. Okay, we're going to get an answer. It's chapter 2, verse 4. But let's marinate for a bit in the question. How does Habakkuk see this? Habakkuk's wrestling to understand how God works in history. Why does God do what God does? Why does God not do what God does not do? Why does God do what he does in the way that God does it? And why does God sometimes do nothing? Habakkuk had lived through a time of spiritual growth followed by a period of spiritual decline. And when Habakkuk cried out to God about it, God answered, he's sending the Babylonians to be an agent of judgment on his people. How could Habakkuk understand this and square God's actions with what Habakkuk knew about God's character? I just want to try to help you feel that a bit before we get to the good answer, right? Imagine you cry out to God about the, the condition of the spiritual beliefs of people in our country. I hope you have, right? You pray and pray. Uh, about pe- uh, people who are unbelievers, don't believe. They, they certainly have the gospel across the radio waves and on the internet and on many books, right? They all come to Christmas cantatas and stuff. They should know, but they don't turn. And you pray about Christians, Christians who know better, Christians who are raised in the church and the lack of holy living and the keeping of the standard of God's word. You hear, you hear nothing from God. You pray and pray and you hear nothing from God. You're praying for revival and you don't see it. It feels like God's not answering. And finally, God answers. God says, don't worry, I'll destroy the church by a communist invasion from China. What? That's the answer. That's how this feels to Habakkuk. I'm trying to help you grasp where he is, okay? You had been asking for a revival, a renewal of God's work by his spirit, not an attack from other unbelievers in a military form. Though the church, you could think, is in a deplorable condition, it doesn't seem right that it should be destroyed and the nation with it by a military invasion. And even if it is to be destroyed, how about using a holy angel instead of a godless army? I'm just completely lost here. Do you get it? Imagine on a personal level for you. We've talked about a national level for us as citizens. How about you personally? You wanted a certain job, let's say. Maybe you wanted a certain healing, a certain medical result, whatever. You're praying, praying, and praying for a good thing to happen. You don't get it. It doesn't happen. The answer is no. Now, you thought you could serve the Lord well in that job, and so you prayed about it, and there first seems to be no answer. And you start to wonder whether God hears you, whether God cares. You pray to God about that. Do you care? Are you hearing me? You pray about all of it. You're doing the right steps. And you discover that God's answering you. He's saying, um, I'll tell you what, I'll give a loved one that you have a desperate sickness and the required medical invasive procedures. What? I wanted this job, not this medical problem for a loved one. And on top of that, now all of a sudden you have an unexpected financial hit and more money stress than you've experienced in years. You happen to run into your lesbian neighbor. And you know, she's one of those rather militant in-your-face lesbian neighbors. And you just happen to say, hi, how's your day going? Just to be, you know, normal, human, intercourse, friendly, uh, interchange the way we talk to humans, right? 
And she says, I just got word. I was hired for a new position for which I had interviewed, and everyone in my family is healthy enough to go on our canoeing trip next spring, so we just scheduled it, and I got a big windfall. Lots of money that I wasn't expecting. It's going great. Have a good day. And she walks away. Are you starting to sense where Habakkuk is? You stand by the mailbox, and you actually start to wonder, why should people who are not even Christians, flouting God, have it so good, while I seem to be missing out on God's favor and blessings, and all I've tried to do for decades is to serve him? When we face problems like this, whether it's at a national level, whether it's at a personal level, it's regarding a bigger group of people than just ourselves, such as the denomination, the nation. It's important that we follow proper biblical procedure for dealing with them in our walk with God. We can't withdraw. So many Christians reach this point and they just pull away from the church entirely. And some people stop worshiping anywhere at all, live stream or not. Others conclude they must have been trusting in the wrong God, so they go on a search and find the Hindu God or the Muslim God, wherever, the God of fun. They renounce all belief in the Christian God. And those are, of course, damaging and unhelpful. But what about you? What should you do? What does the book of Habakkuk train us to do if we're in the dilemma that Habakkuk finds himself in? Well, I'll suggest four steps. Think, go back to basic principles, apply those principles, and then if it's still struggling, speak to God in faith. So for four steps, we'll see how Habakkuk goes through these. First, think. Start figuring it out. What do we have here? What do we have here? Think. Put your thinking cap on. Step number two, go back to basic principles. Go farther back than the start of the problem. Go all the way back. Back to creation. Back to the fall. Think it all through. Where are we? We're standing on a planet that God made. That planet had problems introduced into it. And then God did what? The coming of Christ, right? And what the death and resurrection means. You're reminding yourself of what you know to be true about God and the world and yourself. With all those basic principles secured, then the problem is starting to be seen in the light of the true perspective. Step number three, now apply those basic principles to the new scenario that you're facing that has you discouraged. Having the correct context now and the background, you can reinterpret your problem and it already starts to look very different. If it still isn't fully solved, which is likely the case, it's still not going to be fully solved. Step number four is speak to God in faith. Sometimes the answer is still not understood, right? Turn the whole matter over to God in prayer. Lord, I've done everything I know to do about this problem, and I still don't even understand it. From here on, it's your problem, dear Lord. I'm giving it over to you. Too big for me. I can't do anything about it. I can't solve it. I'm kind of whacked about it. I'm giving the whole thing to you, and I'm going to trust you with it. I'm not going anywhere else. I don't have another God. I'm not tempted. I'm going to worship you. I'm going to serve you. I'm going to trust you. That's how we cope with problems as a believer, reminding ourselves we have a good and powerful God. Let's see how Habakkuk does in this four-step process in response to his dilemma. Number one, Habakkuk is thinking. Do you realize how short this book is? Jeremiah got all of our attention for, what, two years, year and a half, whatever it took. We, we were on Jeremiah for a long time. If, if we preached on Habakkuk, be it what? Six, eight weeks is probably the most I could pull off. But this stuff is profound. It's distilled. 
you know, you either buy a gallon of orange juice or you buy the condensed that's frozen, right? You thaw it out and mix it with a lot of water. Habakkuk is condensed. It's condensed truth. The guy's a thinker. He thinks a lot. He only wrote a little bit. He's a thinker, right? The whole book's only three chapters. It's a total of 56 verses. It's actually 1,400 words. But Habakkuk was a great, great thinker. There's depth here. There's profundity here to show how much Habakkuk was thinking and thinking. Remember the, the name Habakkuk means to embrace, to wrestle, to clasp, to grapple, to dispute. He's working it out with God in faith. He believes in God, but he really wants to get somewhere new. He wants to understand. So the mind of Habakkuk is engaged. He's wrestling through his problems He's bringing it to God in a good way, and he's thinking deeply, even before he wrote any of this down. What we got is the really good stuff that's already refined, right? He's thinking. Number two, step two, going back to basic principles. Look what he says in verse 12. God is everlasting. Isn't that a basic truth? I mean, we're teaching that downstairs, right? The elementary students get God is everlasting. He's always existed. He always will exist. It's everlasting. How does that have to do with, I'm asking about the Babylonian problem. <laughs> right. That's how you get at it. We remind ourselves of what is true and basic. God is everlasting. Okay, what does that mean? How does that help? All right. Think through it with me. God's covenant name is used in verse 12. O Lord. Lord, L-O-R-D. I've taught you that, right? It's the covenant name of God. Yahweh, Jehovah. And it conjures up, as it should, the entirety of the history of the covenant of God. He's promised things. He has fulfilled those promises. That's the God we're talking to. That's the God we're thinking about. That's the God who is over all this, right? And then he says, my God, oh Lord, my God. Are you not from everlasting, oh Lord, my God? And he says it again, my holy one. He's taking possession of this God as his God. This God is the covenant God. And furthermore, this God is holy, All right. This is the God who just said he's sending the dreaded and fearsome Babylonian soldiers to invade us. And it ended with a mention at the end of verse 11 about the God of Babylonian soldiers. Who's the God of Babylonian soldiers? Themselves. Their own strength is what they worship. Their strength is not compared to the everlasting God. God is in existence before Babylon ever rose to power. People like to say... I knew you when you were still in diapers. Yeah, that's nothing. God was in existence centuries before any Babylonians ever were thought about. He's everlasting. It has everything to do with it. Long after Babylon's last action is done and their last weapon lay still, our God will still be the everlasting God. It dwarfs the Babylonian problem when we remember that God is everlasting. Habakkuk didn't know why God was doing what God was doing right now, but Habakkuk starts by reminding himself that Habakkuk served the everlasting God. He gained uh, comfort from remembering this truth about God. Another truth is that God is holy. Are we not reminded again and again in Scripture about God's holiness, such as his holy name? All through the Psalms, his holy name. Praise your holy name. Over in Isaiah 6, verse 3, we're told three times God is holy. No other characteristic of God presented anywhere in the Bible is presented three times in the row like holy is, 
right? Isaiah 6, 3. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the Apostle John picks up that truth from Isaiah when he's writing the last book of the Bible, Revelation 4, verse 8. Again, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. It's recited by the angels in heaven, day and night, without ceasing. This, holy, 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 is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. They're talking about holiness, but they're also talking about the everlastingness, right? Everlasting and holy. He's reminding himself of these things. Doesn't it already feel better? Doesn't it already help? We're only on point two. Who is reviewing the two basic principles of the everlasting character of God and the holy character of God? Habakkuk, the Apostle John, Isaiah, the angels of heaven, and every Christian who's right thinking. That's who's reviewing the characteristics of God, namely everlasting and holy and many others, right? Verse 13, then, is a quote from Habakkuk who contends with God, trying to wrestle this through, right? He brings now a deep question about justice in the universe. Quote, you ready? Verse 13, sort of the second half. Why do you, speaking to God, idly, like without action, look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? Can you help me understand why you everlasting and holy God are silent and without action at this time. He reminds himself that God is holy. He reminds himself that God is everlasting, which means he is always doing what's right. He's holy. But he still doesn't get it. Another characteristic of God is a focus for Habakkuk, and this characteristic has been a theme through the minor prophets. Anyone guess? It's there in your, in your passage. Want a hint? Look at the second half of verse 12. I want you to see it for yourself. Second half of verse 12. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. We in the Reformed world like to call it sovereignty, that God rules, that he's the king, that he's in charge of everything. He's ordained them the Babylonians. He's established them. That God is in control. I mean, to remind ourselves that God controls history, always has, does right now, always will. That's consoling. History's under God's control. History follows his plan. History happens in God's timetable. He says when, in his time. History is tied to God's kingdom. For example, Galatians 4.4, 4, when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Why? To redeem those who are under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons. What does God's sovereignty have to do with Habakkuk's praying and our study of these verses and the big question of why did the wicked prosper? Because the Babylonians didn't rise up on their own. They didn't rise up on their own with God saying, well, I don't know, I'm not going to intervene right now. God caused it, people. <laughs> He's sovereign. Nothing happens. No square inch of this planet happens without God's control. Babylonians didn't rise up on their own. God raised them up. 
Look at verse 6. Behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and nasty nation. We've got we to square ourselves with that. I'm sending you diabetes, you know, that nasty disease of human blood sugar. I'm sending it to you. What? What? We don't think clearly. God raised up the Babylonians exactly when God wanted to. He brought the Babylonians onto the scene in the precise geographical location that God wanted them to be. Kings such as David understood this. Even King Nebuchadnezzar came to understand this, the later king of Babylon, right? When you read his statement in Daniel 2.20 that God removes kings and God sets up kings. Meanwhile, over in Israel, our prophet was saying the same thing. He's sovereign, which means he raises up kings and he brings down kings. If he wants to raise up the Babylonians and bring down the Assyrians and then bring down Israel and Judah, he's going to raise up and bring down all those things I just said. Whatever God does, he does. Whatever he wants to do, he does. He's sovereign. And one more basic principle. Verse 12, O rock. What does that mean? O rock. When you call someone your rock, it means that's the person that helps you with stability because you know you can count on them. Faithfulness. O rock means faithfulness. It's the attribute of God of faithfulness. Calling God rock is like saying he provides a firm place for our feet where I don't slip and slide on the ice. I got a foot on dry sidewalk so I can manage. We can build our whole lives on the foundation of God, our rock. Everything I believe, everything that's happening, swirling around me, local, a little more distant, a little more distant, the whole world, history of the world, future of the world, my kids, my grandkids, I can build all of my life on my rock. He's talking about himself. Oh, rock, you are my rock. His relationship to God is Habakkuk says, you are my rock. And just as he's already said twice in verse 12, the personal nature of his relationship, my God, my holy one, he is O rock. We could interject there, my rock. Now he takes these principles to apply to the scenario he's facing. Step three, Babylon's coming. Okay, how does an everlasting, holy, faithful God, who is my rock, impact the situation that Babylon's still coming? Chapter 2, 1. I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower to look out to see what he will say to me. You know he's faithful. You know he's holy. You know he's everlasting. You know he's my rock. What's he going to say to me in this situation? We've reviewed principles. Now let's apply them to this. I will keep expecting to see his faithfulness in this situation. I will trust in his faithfulness to come through this time again. God has not abandoned me. He's not abandoned us. We are God's people. God is for our good. Victory for the army of Babylon is somehow good for us. Diabetes is somehow good for me, Lord God. I accept it as from your hand. What? Psychology doesn't tell you that. Christ tells you that. It's not the result of mere chance. God has not changed his mind about being the covenant God of his people, Israel. So what's the invasion of the army of Babylon? What is left for how to interpret that? It must be a spanking paddle in God's hand for the correction and betterment of his people, and that's good. It's holy. It's appropriate. The invasion of the nasty army 
is to be used by God to do good for his people. That's why Habakkuk could profoundly say in verse 12, O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O rock, have established them for reproof. They're fixing us. They're correcting us. But Habakkuk's still struggling. That was step three, but then there's step four. If still struggling, speak to God in faith. When we're stuck, we commit our confusion to God in faith. We leave unanswered issues in God's hands. It's where Habakkuk is in chapter 2-1, taking his stand at the watch post, watching to see what, what God will say. He's taken all the right steps. He's come as far as reasoning and correct beliefs can take him. He now needs to know more, which is beyond him. If he's going to progress through his dilemma, he has to wait, waiting for instruction from God. We'll pick up there next week. Out of time.